coming up on Crossing the Lane Lines. I don't know, a lot of black people scared of deep water. I was also afraid of water. Right? So I had chances earlier to learn how to swim. And when I was younger, just didn't really have the courage. This black folk doesn't, does not swim. <laughs> Taking on stereotypes, like the age-old one that blacks don't swim, is challenging enough when whites say it. But how does one take on the issue when the subject themselves believes it? We'll speak with Bruce Wigo, the former head of the International Swimming Hall of Fame, about this very thing. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. There are a number of stereotypes that to this day are still pervasive. However, one still stands out as the clear frontrunner, the long-standing assumption that blacks don't swim. Beliefs in these stereotypes are upheld by the statistics of USA Swimming's membership, where blacks comprise less than 2% of the more than 300,000 members nationwide. Joining us to talk more about this issue is Bruce Wigo. Bruce is the former director of the International Swimming Hall of Fame, and beginning in 1991, he was the executive director of USA Water Polo Team and held that position for 13 years. He is the author of The Golden Age of Swimming, a pictorial history of the sport and pools that changed America. Bruce Wigo, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you, Najee. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Bruce, there was a time when blacks and other people of color were regarded as great swimmers, and those that made these statements were whites. How do we get from this statement to our current assumption that black folk don't swim? Well, if we had two hours, maybe we could go into it. But in the short, the uh, Europeans were not great swimmers, and you can understand that because up in Europe, uh, it's warm for maybe one or two months a year, whereas in tropical areas like the Americas, Africa in particular, uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands, these are tropical waters where people lived and relied upon the water for transportation, for food gathering, and and for pleasure. And the first the, the Europeans first discovered the great swimming abilities of the Africans in the 1450s when uh, Prince Henry the Navigator dispatched some sailors to try and find another route to the Middle East and to China where they could get spices and teas and all that type of stuff, which were closed off during the uh, Islamic uh, era of domination of the Middle East. So they had to find another route. And when they went to sub-Saharan Africa, they discovered the most incredible swimmers in the world. And this was true for the next 400 years. I mean, 50 years after 1450, when the first contact was made and the descriptions of the Africans, of the mothers taking their babies to swim before they could walk. And, and we know today that you children, the best age to learn is six months because you still retain that mammalian diving reflex. And so the Africans were absolutely the greatest swimmers. Then when Columbus came to the Americas, he also discovered the Native Americans did the same thing. The mothers taught their babies to swim before they could walk. But over time, the Native American population was decimated by disease. 
And it was the Africans who were brought over to the Americas primarily for their great skill of swimming. It wasn't to be slaves on cotton plantations in South Carolina. It was to harvest the pearls that Columbus discovered off the coast of Venezuela. And then because of their great diving and swimming abilities, it was there were ports, uh, Veracruz, Havana, uh, in Colombia and Venezuela, armed with African divers who were there to recover not just pearls, but uh, shipwrecks and merchandise lost at sea. And this continued till about the middle of the uh, 1800s. And there's certainly a lot of historians, Kevin Dawson being from one, a professor at the University of Merced in California, who describe that 80% of Africans and African-Americans slaved and, in, and enslaved and free, maybe as many as 80% could swim. They retained that African swimming culture up until the time of the Civil War. 25% uh, of the Union Navy were African-Americans, and they were one regarded as the swimmers. <laughs> the whaling fleets, uh, there were all black whaling ships that went out. And one reason that was a pretty good idea to be on a whaling fleet was uh, that you knew how to swim because the whales would knock over the boats and, uh, you know, the ones that harpooned the, the whales, like in Moby Dick. <laughs> so the Africans and African descendants were swimmers. And then you come to the Civil War. And then you come to Reconstruction, where African-Americans still enjoyed swimming on the beaches and lakes that were the great swimming holes of America. And then after Reconstruction in the South, uh, these things were closed because the white population finally got interested in swimming and did not want to swim with blacks. And up and even in the northern areas, so during the summertime, the South was so hot that the wealthy Southerners would come north to the resorts of Cape May and Long Branch, New Jersey, uh, Newport, and uh, the tourist industry catered to these white Southerners who would refuse to swim in areas or stay in hotels or any other place where their African-Americans were. So this sinister racism that, retained, that was uh, part of the Southern culture that led to the Civil War was imported to the North, and this particularly was true in anything to do with swimming. And as I write in my book on the, the golden age of swimming, it was the golden age of swimming for whites, but it was the dark ages for blacks because virtually every safe swimming hole and every swimming pool in America was closed off to black people and Mexican people and anybody that wasn't white. So you had this 400 years from the first encounter of whites to Africa until the middle of the 1800s, the African-Americans were the greatest swimmers in the world and the Africans, not just African-Americans, but Afro-Caribbeans and Afro-South Americans. And it's totally well-documented. But when the history of swimming was written by Europeans, particularly the British in the early 1900s, there's uh, the books are 400, 500 pages long on the history of swimming. It goes back to Rome and Greece and completely overlooks the contributions of Africans and African-Americans and Native Americans to the history of swimming. You've been quoted as saying, quote, I'd like to see us get back to where swimming was during the 1920s through the 1940s, when swimming was seen as the way to better health and pools were very much at the epicenter of social life. We've really lost that close quote. Could you talk about that, please? 
Yeah, well, what I meant by that was a golden age that would have open opportunities for everyone. Now, the golden age of swimming is really an indictment against uh, American culture that closed off swimming to African-Americans and and other Native Americans as well and uh, Latino Americans. Because this golden age of swimming took a white population that was maybe 20 percent swimmers and the giant pools, the architecture and structure of pools where the swimming pools were incredibly popular. They were more like water parks than competitive swimming pools. And it wasn't about fear that taught people that in, that encouraged Euro-Americans to swim. It was about the fun aspect of going to a swimming pool. So these pools that I portray in my book were totally unlike swimming pools that exist today. And these were the social epicenters of public life. There was something for everybody to do. There were places that you could hang out all day for women, for, for kids. These were the funnest places you could go to and the most popular activity for white America in this, what I call the golden age. It could have rarely been <laughs> another perspective. If I put a different title on this, it would be the dark ages of swimming. But that would be geared towards the African-American and non-white community, because that's what it was. To be honest, 12 years ago, I had barely any knowledge about the rich swimming history of black people in the U.S. and the diaspora. But I've learned so much from the International Swimming Hall of Fame website. Talk to me about your commitment to making the International Swimming Hall of Fame a place educating people about the true history of swimming and not the one that centers on a white perspective. When I came to the Swimming Hall of Fame, I had a great interest in a fellow by the name of Benjamin Franklin, who was very much a swimmer and did a lot to popularize swimming. And as all the biographies that have been written about him mention, he read what inspired him to swim or what got him to be the accomplished swimmer that he was, was a book that he read that was published in 1699 and actually written in in uh, in the 1580s. And what this guy, Stephen O, so it's the Stephen O book, The Art of Swimming. So what this book said, and I'd never read it before I got to the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 2005. And in the introduction to that book, it says that in ancient times, Romans and Greeks uh, practiced swimming. But in modern times, and we're talking about the 1500s, the 1600s, the Africans and Native Americans were the great practitioners of swimming. It's to them our women owe their pearls. It's to them that our merchants owe the recovery of merchandise and anchors lost at sea. And then it goes in a little bit more about them. But this kind of blew me away because growing up in the 1950s, you didn't see very many African-American swimmers. And my first swim meet that I ever swam in, we had an integrated swim league in Philadelphia. And I was at the Christian Street Y, the very first swim meet I ever was in, I think I was seven years old, was against an all-black team. And so, and the captain of my brother's team at the University of Pennsylvania, I mean, there were some black swimmers in Philadelphia growing up, so it didn't really shock me. But the general perception was that blacks didn't swim or couldn't swim. And so this really blew me away. So it required more research. And so staying up uh, all hours of the night looking at 
Negro or African swimming, drowning, all these type of things. And on the Internet, you can just come up with some amazing stuff. And there's so many uh, archives and researches of old newspapers going back to the 1700s. But but Franklin's perception and, and then you go and you read, I mean, uh, this guy found Cato Musto, some Venetian sea captain and a couple others. But you go back and you read that these people go and they meet these African tribes. And this was even before slavery. So before slavery even happened, these explorers sent by uh, Prince Henry, the navigator, to explore a route to get around Africa and get over to the Middle East. It's universal. The Africans were the most incredible swimmers on the planet. And Africans were taken back to Europe, whether enslaved or as free men, to be master swim instructors in Venice and Genoa to teach, you know, the courtiers how to swim. So it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal story that's never been told. And then you read about something like as innocuous as the Underground Railroad. How did the Underground Railroad get its name? It came from a swimmer named Tice Davids who swam across the Ohio River to escape uh, the slave hunters who were chasing him. And he goes and dives underwater and doesn't resurface and presumably disappeared and drowned and got to where he was going by some underground railroad, meaning really he was going to, you know, he died. So the Underground Railroad's named after him, after a swimmer. So the more and more research you do, you find this incredible story that I don't think had ever been told or documented anywhere. And this had to be part of the history of swimming and as told through the International Swimming Hall of Fame. Can you explain the stereotype threat phenomena? What is it and what is its impact on learning this valuable life skill? Well, I became intrigued with the stereo threat, the stereotype threat from uh, reading a book that was pretty interesting by Claude Steele called Whistling Vivaldi. And Claude Steele was a psychology professor at the University of at Stanford University, where my kids went to college and studied them and all this. And the idea was that, you know, people have different perceptions of people. And, you know, like if it's a crime, I don't know if you remember old Mad Magazine things that I remember reading as a kid that, you know, white guys walking on one side of the street and there's the bubble of what they're thinking is, you know, they're seeing black guys, oh man, these, you know, they're going to beat us up. (laughs) And then they showed the bubble of the black guys walking along the street saying, oh, those white racists, they're going to beat us up. (laughs) You know, so it's this, stereotype that we have of each other. So what Claude Steele found was that as he was a black man walking down the street, it was a different perception of him if he was whistling Vivaldi. Because then they think, you know, the white people would think, oh, this guy's so cultured. He's whistling Vivaldi. He's not not a criminal. He's not going to rob us. So when you take this, the stereotype threat with regard to swimming, white people, like, from uh, who was that guy, Al Campanis, you know, goes on national TV and says, well, whites or black people don't have the capabilities to swim, just like they don't have the capabilities to be managers in, you know, professional baseball or something. And that was a huge thing. He got fired for it rightfully for coming out and saying that. But that was the thought of a lot of people in white culture, that black people just just they didn't weren't physically capable of swimming for these old, you know, uh, physiological studies that were absolutely totally false. 
but this was the perception for white people that, well, why didn't, why didn't we let black people come into the swimming pool? Well, they don't like swimming anyway, and they're not physically capable of it. And pretty soon the stereotype threat becomes part of black culture, that they start believing that, well, we're just not physically adept to swimming, or we're not capable of swimming. And that's the stereotype threat, that once the stereotype is out there, the people that are stereotyped start believing in the stereotype themselves. And I think that film, uh, you know, Blacks Can't Swim by Ed Acura, the British uh, hip hop artist, he came to believe that. He was comfortable in the stereotype that he couldn't swim. And of course, that leads to all the fear. I mean, if you've seen the, the film, it's pretty hysterical. He's you know, wearing a life jacket going around because, gee, he might be pushed into the water sometime or fall in accidentally. So this is what the stereotype is, that the stereotype that's established by white culture regarding swimming, you know, a century and a half ago, has become accepted within black society that we can't swim or that, you know, black people can't swim. And that's the big stereotype threat. And how do you get rid of it? And it's a, you know, a multi-comp issue. And one way is to tell the history that if there was ever a stereotype, about anybody anywhere, it's the stereotype that black people can't swim. That's unbelievably refuted absolutely by history. So that was the, that's one of the points. It's one of the things, but it's not the only answer, but it's part of the answer to show that African-Americans have this, and Africans have this unbelievably rich history in swimming well before it became a competitive sport. As we both know, there are a number of outreach programs that offer free swim lessons, one of the biggest being USA Swimming's Make a Splash program. But you have argued that more needs to be done than just teaching someone to swim. Can you talk about why you feel that swimming needs to be regarded as more of a science curriculum rather than merely a physical education class or life-saving skill? Well, I think that, uh, you know, Make a Splash has been nice to draw attention to it, but I don't think anyone ever learned to swim during a make a splash uh, segment, you know, appearance. I mean, it's great for publicity. It's certainly done well for USA Swimming to attract you know, some money for the, you know, for their efforts to send people out into the community, but it's like helicoptering something in. Learning to swim is really not just swimming 10 feet or across a pool. It's learning to be comfortable as comfortable and to move as easily in the water as on land. It's not about speed. It's not about anything. It's about being comfortable in the water. And where I go back to, to this is uh, swimming as there once was a time where swimming was mandatory part of education at universities. In other words, if you couldn't pass a semi-difficult swim test, you couldn't graduate. So you had to take a class and learn it, but it was learning it to learn it out of, fear, and this has been, you know, people want to learn to swim, they can do it on their own. Unfortunately, it's as Ed Acura talks about in his in his film for people, it's just not a priority within the African-American community. And it's, and the connection to swimming over a hundred and two, you know, a couple hundred years of living in America with, you know, the racist policies, Jim Crow laws that have excluded people. So, if generally, if your parents don't swim, you're not going to swim. If you don't learn to swim before seven, the chances that you're going to learn to swim, I mean, you're, you're a great exception, Najee. The chances of someone who doesn't learn to swim in their youth 
is remote. So for me, I look back and I look at how this, this going back to this book, even though the art of swimming, it was a scientific treatise. And we're never going to get swimming put back in educational programs to, as a sport. I mean, why not football, tennis, or basketball, or golf? And we know the reasons. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just why, you know, it's one sport. Why learn it? But what swimming incorporates is basic science. It's Archimedes' principles of buoyancy and flotation. It's uh, Newton's laws of motion and friction. And both of those guys, uh, levers. So it's the movement of arms and stuff through the water. So I think that what I've come upon is a more or less a revolutionary new methodology for teaching swimming as science. So you learn in the classroom all the basics of buoyancy. So we are basically the same specific gravity as water itself, which is why we float, but we don't float with our heads out of the water and breathing. We can do that by floating on our backs, but our legs are very heavy and there's a science to learning how to float. And all of this, so what I'm, what I'm proposing is that swimming be part of mandatory public education in the primary schools at best, middle schools at worst, and that we learn first flotation and the science of movement in the water before they get in the water. So the kids are understanding of this whole bit about uh, understanding the science of swimming before we take them in the water. And it's something we can learn very easily. And I think we need to do that. It's not something, you know, one term where you have an Olympic athlete coming in and giving some, you know, motivational stuff about you too can be, you know, an Olympic champion, which is fabulous. But it's only one part of the puzzle. And I don't, I'm not sure that, you know, being an Olympic champion is comparable to being, uh, you know, the top football player, you know, Mahomes or LeBron James or any of these superstars coming along in there. Because one thing, swimming is not about making money. And I've never met an Olympic champion whose parents took them to learn to swim to be an Olympic champion. Now, as you're the first time you dribble a basketball, maybe that's what you're thinking. Or the parents are thinking, oh, they could be the next LeBron. But when it comes to swimming, it's, wow, we could be safe. We can enjoy all the multitude of recreational activities. We can not be fearful of living on a planet that's two-thirds covered with water. So we need to get back to that about swimming. It's a fun activity. I mean, I'm swimming. My my 97-year-old mother is now living with us because of this corona stuff. And I happen to be fortunate enough to have a swimming pool in my backyard. And, of course, I have home movies of my mom swimming, you know, of me swimming with my mom, like, at five years of age. And now I've taken some videos of me swimming with my mom, and she's 97, and I'm 70. Can you do that with any other sport? You can't. And we are going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Bruce Wigo, the former head of the International Swimming Hall of Fame and an All-American swimmer and water polo player in high school and a former executive director of USA Water Polo for 13 years. He is the author of The Golden Age of Swimming, a pictorial history of sport and pools that changed America. Bruce Wigo, we wish you and your family well during this COVID pandemic, and thank you so much for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thanks, Nadju. It was great talking to you, and your story is every bit as inspiring to me as anyone I've ever read. So 
keep swimming and I know you will and keep promoting this uh, great activity. I don't want to call it a sport. I want to call it an exercise or just a, a great activity that everyone needs to be a part of. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines, signing off.